All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. <laughs> Facebook Live was not working, but I believe it is now, so we will move ahead. We would have moved ahead anyway, but nonetheless, here we go. I want to I share something that is very near and dear to my heart uh, this morning. And I think it's a word for all of us that really probably, truth be told, could be said at any point in our life and would be encouraging, but I think for some of you may be particularly encouraging uh, today. Uh, if you will, look here at Matthew chapter 7, and as you well know, this is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is in this important, almost inaugural sermon of Jesus, where he ascends a mountain, much like Moses did, and rather than, get this, rather than receiving God's word... He gives God's word because, in fact, he is God. And so part of this giving of the word (laughs) happens here in 7. And this is near the end of of what we have of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, notice, we're going to pick up in 7. Okay, so 7, 7. Notice these words here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks... Receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And then in Luke it actually says, or if he asks for an egg, you'd give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that You came only speaking what the Father said, doing the Father's will. And, O Heavenly Father, we ask You to give us this good gift today. We're here asking. We're here seeking. We're here knocking. Give us your best gift, we pray. In your name, amen. I came across an article, and I'd heard, you know, statistics before, staggering statistics, but, th- but this, this really is just almost absurd, the, um, the, uh, the statistics on if men go to church, how their children will go to church. In other words, if the father goes to church, then it's... Look, there's so many numbers here, I'm not good with all this, so I can send this to you later if you want it. And it's, it's actually a complicated series of things, but somewhere around 80% fact that your children will go to church. Now, if dad doesn't go to church and mom is... I mean, there's, they, they did the study all different kind of ways. If the dad was regular irregular or non-existent, if the mom was regular, irregular, non-existent, they mixed and matched all the way around, and dad was the discerning factor. It actually went up even if mom didn't go, but dad did. Point being, simply, it matters that fathers instruct their children, as the Bible says we are to instruct our children, in the faith, particularly 
by being in the faith, not just in some academic sense, right? Not in just a way of, yeah, 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 you should do this. That old thing of do as I say, not as I do, that actually doesn't work, you know? They're going to do what you do and not just what you say. And so I just want to plug that at the very beginning. Those dads that we have here, thank you. You're already making a difference in the world just by simply being here. This wasn't even gauging, by the way, whether or not, you know, they're actively Christian at home. This is just simply, if you went to church, dramatically changes the landscape of our culture. Now, of course, we know that from the Bible. But we also know it because here's the deal, and I want to I affirm this to all of us, and that is the reason fathers are important is because we have a heavenly father that is good, and he is for us. Now, sometimes we take that for granted within Christianity because that's sort of ho-hum for us, right? It's like, yeah, well, God is our father. That's the way our creed begins, you know. You always, in any creed of the Christian church, it always begins with Father. And even Jesus' prayer, our Father, which we'll be saying in just a few moments. Well, here's the deal. It's not something that's normative within religion. Think about it. All the myths have father figures. For instance, Zeus is a father figure. Thor is a father figure. Now, if you know anything about these myths... Norse myths and Greek myths or Roman myths or even go back to Babylonian myths, none of these fathers are good fathers. They're capricious at best, which means they're wishy-washy. They're all over the place. You can't tell if they're going to come in in a drunken rage and be angry and beating people or have you know, swear words to say to their family or if they're just simply aloof. They're just not around. It's like, got to go to work, got to work late, never going to be there. That's how the mythic gods always operate. There's actually a Zambian myth, by the way, I, uh, when I teach world religions, we always go over this because I think this was an interesting one. Uh, there's a Zambian myth, which of course is in Africa, and it says that the high god, who's always a father god, you know, by the way, the high god is never around anymore. You can't ever find him. That's, that's one of the things in, in mythic uh, tribal religion they, they can never find the high God. Even though everything is the high God and is a byproduct of the high God, he's gone now. But the reason he left, they, have a, they, they know why he left. It was because one day this lady was cleaning her house and she reached up to get some cobwebs out of the house and she poked him in the eye and he got mad and he left and they haven't seen him since. Now that's comical and, you know, I always get a couple laughs out of students, but... The reality is this, myth is, a refle- is supposed to be a reflection of reality. So what are they saying about dads? What are they saying about fathers? Any little thing and they scoot. Let me tell you something, that's not what a good father does. That is not a godly father. One that when things get bad or he gets poked in the eye or he gets hurt, he's gone abandoning his responsibilities of his wife, of his children. No, you see, myth has it wrong. And so does Islam. Islam also speaks of God and only one God. So in that way, we have a lot more in common than mythological understandings of the divine. And yet, it, I mean, 
you wouldn't want to ever go to a mosque and call God Father. That's a no-no. He is not your Father. You don't mess with God. You submit to God. But you don't, Father, don't even think about calling him Abba, Father. Daddy, are you crazy? That's blasphemous within Islam. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus says that we can call God Abba. Which in Aramaic is Daddy. He is our Father in the Dad kind of sense. Not Father meaning distant, but rather Dad meaning in my life. You see, here's the declaration that we have that our culture needs so desperately is that we don't just serve a king. Yes, the Bible has all kind of sovereign, regal language for God. And yes, he is the king of all things and the king of kings and lord of lords. But that's not where our images of God stop, is it? For when Jesus comes, he says that he reveals God perfectly. And guess who he calls God? Not, O regal king, we are here to submit to you today, but rather, Father. I mean, it's hard to to set up for for those of us who, who have been immersed in this, the radical nature of the claim that we can even say the God of the universe is our Father. That's insane. Insane good news. And it's something that people don't believe. They don't really believe that God is a good Father. And in times like even today, where there is great suffering around us, and in our own nation, and, you know, goodness gracious, around the world, might we remember, as we remember our missionaries, great suffering. And yet, we can proclaim that God is a good Father. Now, you say, how can we say that? Well, it may, it may interest you to know that my first defense, so to speak, would be to say, that the reason we know that God is a good father is because there's bad fathers. I mean, after all, what would we mean by bad father? Like, what are you using to gauge that by, right? It's like, that's bad milk. Okay, how do you know it's bad? Well, it's got chunks in it. Well, it smells sour. Okay, well, how do you know what bad milk is? compared to good milk. Oh, it's compared to good milk. So milk should just be free-flowing and not chunky. And it shouldn't smell sour like it does now. Correct. You see, reality is you can't have spoiled milk unless you had good milk. So I'm saying, if you had a bad father, that's a signpost right there that there actually is a good father that defines fatherhood. No earthly father defines fatherhood for the Father Almighty. 
the one we just creedily said to one another, is the one who defines all fatherhood and family. So we ought not to then look to human fathers to define God for us. Rather, God defines fatherhood for us. And oh, what shoes we have to fill. Dads, moms, when we look at the parenting of God to His children. And when we look at the way He treats His children, one has to really say, well, where in the Bible do we even start getting this this language, if you will, of fatherhood? And I'm not going to spend, I'm going to cruise through it at like 50,000 feet above looking at this, okay? It's not a Bible study on all the times where Father is mentioned, but it's fascinating, okay? It's fascinating that God, right from the beginning, as soon as he calls Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, notice he then becomes known as the God of what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wants to be identified in familial language, not as a God who just simply knows everything because he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, He's omnipresent, omni-whatever. How many times is that said in the Bible? No, the Bible has it. See, that's where we go is the philosophical. We like that. We like the metaphysical. We like the philosophical. And the reason we like it is because it keeps God at the arm's length. It keeps him only in our head and not in our heart. But God says, no, I'll have none of that. I'm going to be known as the God of Abraham who his story is crazy. Isaac, crazy. Jacob, crazier, I would say. Who becomes Israel, right? One who fights with God and man and succeeds. He says, that's who I'm going to be recognized as, is a familial God, one that then becomes Israel. And Israel, he says, once they get into captivity in Egypt, and then Moses comes, the first thing Moses says that God is telling him to say, he says this to Pharaoh, he goes, let my firstborn go. That's the language, actually, in Exodus. Let my firstborn son go. So God, at that point, even in Exodus, sees Israel as his son. And here's what he said, here's the follow-up of that. He says, you let my firstborn go, or I'm going to kill your firstborn. And of course, as you know, He tries not to. He gives him ten different times. Like, don't do it. But he tells him before the plagues even begin, you let my firstborn son go or I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And of course, at the end of the day, on the tenth plague, it is the firstborn who dies. Why firstborn? Because he wants to have many sons and daughters. That's why. Israel was not elected just so they could be saved but elected so that the world could be saved and know God. The firstborn of many. Jesus is recognized as the firstborn from the dead. Because Israel couldn't do that, but God could. The firstborn son, the only begotten son, who invites all other sons and daughters into the family through baptism. Whew, man, that's some good news, folks. I, I, you know, I don't know where you are in your life right now, but to have a good father 
to live in the, so to speak, shadow of your father, it kind of allows you to play. So when I first started preaching, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the shadow of my father. Like, I'll only get introduced because, you know, this, this is Marshall, who is Hal's son, right? You know, and so that got on my nerves, you know what I mean? I wanted people to know who I was just for my sake, not my dad's sake, but they liked him better. They liked his preaching better. And I was some, you know, green behind the ears dude, right? And so for a long time, I didn't like that. But now I count it an honor that I'm in his shadow, that I'm only identified by my father. Why? Because we all are. Either our father is the father of lies, who is Satan. And John particularly gets after that big time, doesn't he? If you don't love your God, your father is the father of lies, Satan. Or he is the good father. It's one or the other. Either we're illegitimate or we are legitimately his. And man, I, you know, here's the thing. I remember as a kid, did you ever worry about eating? Like, I mean, some people may have been in that kind of situation, but I didn't worry about, like, where the food was going to come because I knew my dad was going to have something. It's like, we're going to eat eventually. Maybe not when I wanted to, you know, especially once I got to be a teenager. It was all the time. It's like, no, but, but no, I didn't, I didn't. So as a kid, as a child, what does that allow you to do? It allows you to play, right? If you're not having to get a job and go work at seven years old, like I learned, you know, I was on that ship, what was it called, the Jackson? Nina and Pinta, yes, in Decatur. You know, it's an old Christopher Columbus, whatever, traveling ship, plural. And I uh, went on that thing, and the guy's like, yeah, so you, little fella, he's on a bow. He's like, you would have started work because you're eight. You would have started work down in there. <laughs> it's like, Wow. Seven years old, you're on a ship out in the middle of nowhere scooping up poop, and that's your job for the next year. Um, that's not my childhood. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. Like, it wasn't that we were rich, but that's not my childhood. I got to play as a child, and the reason is because I was in the shadow of my father. He took care of me. He took care of us. And sometimes that means corrective language, doesn't it? I mean, I, I remember we went to the Grand Canyon, and we were having a a great time, and, you know, we're, we're kind of, walk, we walk down part of the Grand Canyon, we're like looking over all of it, I mean, it's just unbelievably beautiful, and, and I noticed that Justin was standing by a sign that said something about, like, precarious rocks or slippery rocks, you know, and it showed a guy dying by falling off the Grand Canyon, it was like a picture, you know, so even if you couldn't read, which he could at that time, he was, you know, you could still see that, like, those rocks meant sudden death, you know, because you just slide right off, and he was standing there, and Daddy grabbed him, and I'll never forget it, because after the fact, I thought, wow, we could have literally just lost him, you know? And, uh, and, and it was my dad who saved him, literally. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been, if I would have went over there, I would have probably slid off and, you know, whatever else. But he reached out and grabbed him and saved him by his instructions, and he, and he wasn't happy about it. <laughs> um, and you can imagine why. Why do you think... God in the Old Testament is upset about sin. It's because he, he sees us in that way. And he's given us all the signs. 
And here we are standing on the precipice of, of Hades, death, hell. And he wants to reach out, and he is reaching out. He's calling our name. If we just simply turn today, if we just simply turn today, you see, he, his right arm would save us from sudden death. You know, sometimes we, we hold things in our life and we think we've done them. You know, I mean, that's part of what this stewardship small group is talking about is really everything is from God that's good in our life. But sometimes we think we've done the work and we're holding on to something in our life that will actually kill us. And of course, you've, many of you have heard this story before, but it's just, there's no better illustration in my mind than one morning uh, we were still lazily uh, hanging around. I think it was like a Saturday. And Jackson comes in and says, hey, Daddy, uh, Birdie has a knife. And I was like, son, he's, he's probably a play knife, whatever, you know. I mean, Jackson's a little bitty, and so his better was, was less than two years old, so he's one, you know. And, uh, and so anyway, he... He runs back in there, and then I thought to myself, you know, we don't have a kitchenette set. We don't have any girls. At that time, the girl was still a few kids away. Um, <laughs> it was just Baylor and Jackson at this point. And, and so I, I get up real quick out of the bed. I'm like, what, what's going on? Go in there, and Frank, who I call Baylor, Birdie is what Jackson used to call him. He's got a <laughs> complex, I'm sure. But he was sitting there holding two stainless steel paring knives. Two, and I mean, just like stainless, I mean, you know, just sharp as a tack. And he's watching his uh, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse like this, sucking his little passy, you know. He's got two very dangerous knives in his hand. And, and Jackson, of course, being small like he is, there's Baylor. He goes right over by him and stands and says, see, Daddy, I told you he had knives. And I'm like, ah, you know, I mean, like inside I'm freaking out. I mean, what do you do, right? I mean, this is a, this is a kid, and... We all know what kids do when you try to grab something from them, right? What do they do? They pull back. He's going to be hurt. I mean, this is all happening in a split second. And, and I'm thinking, man, if I go after him, his natural reaction is this. It's going to hurt him. I mean, the, I'm, I'm telling you, it was a scary situation. And if I just say, all right, son, it's fine. Y'all can just keep playing, whatever. I'm going to go to bed. Uh, that's not good either. He's going to kill his brother somehow. So he just... Watching his little show. And I say, sweetie, give daddy the knives, baby. Give daddy the knives. Somehow he had gotten into the dishwasher, into the compartment where we had the knives. At one year, I don't, you'd think he's a genius. It doesn't seem to be bearing itself out now all the time. But, <laughs> but you'd think he was a genius at this point, child prodigy. And somehow he'd gotten in the dishwasher, got these knives out, and brought them into the living room and thought he'd really done something, really found something. You know, I mean, I'm sure he felt very accomplished, like many of us do when we hold on to things in our lives. And I just said, sweetie, give, give dad the knives, baby. And I just kind of approached him with my hands out. And he just gave them to me. Situation back to normal. And the Lord immediately just spoke to my heart and said, that's you all the time when you try to hold on to stuff. You, you're going to hurt other people with what I'm telling you to give me. Like you don't want to get, you pull back, you do all this stuff, you think you've done it. It's your accomplishments. It's your possessions. 
your gifts, your life, your house, your car, blah, blah. If you just give it to me, I can give you something way better than that. And at each subsequent life span and change in my own life, as I'm fastly approaching 40, it's like the Lord, I'm chugging along, and he's like, all right, now give me that. Well, I mean, I've had this for a while, Lord. I, I want it now. Give it to me. It's, it's either yes or no. Because remember, with Dad, there's no discussing it. It's either yes or no. Do you trust me? Here's the good news. We can trust him. He's a good father. He, he'll give us what we ask for, this text says. You say, well, why am I not getting what I'm asking for? Because I'm asking for a bigger house and a bigger income. And I... That's like me you know, taking one of those stainless steel knives and giving it to Blakely and say, here, baby, I know you wanted this, so here you go. No, Father knows best. We have to trust that sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't look like it to us at all. I mean, there were a bunch, well, in my childhood, I don't know about yours, but there are a lot more no's than yeses. Let me just tell you right now. I mean, I know y'all have met dad and stuff, and y'all think he's all gracious and everything, but let me tell you, he was a different animal when we were around, okay? And we were growing up. I promise you he's not the same man. Something happened, and we don't know what yet, but because the way he treats my, my children, uh, it's like, hey, where's that hard-nosed dude at, you know? I never hear no. It's only yes. Anyway. In the Bible, there's a lot of no's, isn't it? It's a lot of no's. kind of gets on our nerves, you know? But that's part of that wildness that needs to be brought into submission to our Father. And we may not get an answer in this life, but what we can know is that we can trust that what he gives us is good. And if we will give him those things that he's asking for, he'll give us something better. He will. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's what we need most of all. It's not even possession-wise. I mean, we just sang a song. I'm terrible at lyrics, but it, it said something about, you know, we don't need anything but Jesus, his spirit. That's who we need is his spirit. Are we willing to have nothing but Jesus? Trust me, that's easier said than done. Because as soon as he starts saying, hand me that, our initial reaction is to pull back. Just like a hurt child, we pull back. Mine. But listen, friends, you know this. This is the posture of Christianity right here. This is the posture of Christianity. Open hands. And if, if Jesus' body were here, which he's at the Father's right hand in his body, he is with us in the Holy Spirit of Christ. But if his, we could see his body, and one day we will, his actual body, his hands are open to us, aren't they? And as the prophet said, how could he forget us? Because our names are written on his hand. Dr. Oswald, when he was preaching the other week when I was there, he said, he said, 
If God has a refrigerator, you're on it. You're on it. You're there. And you know what? He doesn't know everything just because he's God. He knows everything about you because he is your father. He counted it up today. He has more thoughts about you than the sand. He knows you more than we know ourselves. I wonder today if you would trust him. If you would take the step of faith to say, you are good and I want what you want. And I want you to give me what you want to give me. And I'm willing to to let things pass in and out. Because here's the thing, if you've got a closed fist, he cannot give you the good gifts. I mean, I had, I had a kid yesterday clam up on me, you know, when they get mad, when they get in trouble, and we, we do this spiritually. I mean, I was sitting there looking at her and thinking, this is what we, this is what we do spiritually. We just, hmm. Can we receive anything when we're like that? Hmm. It's Baylor times two. No, we have, we have a good father, and he is for you, and he's willing to share all things with you. All things with you. And one of these days, friends, one of these days, we're going to stand before God. And there's going to be another father there, an illegitimate father, the father of lies, who the Bible says is the accuser, which is literally what Satan means, the accuser. And he's going to do what he always does, and he's going to lie. And he's going to say, you're going to be standing there, and he's going to say, he did this to you. He abandoned you. He spit in your face at this point. He never thought about you. Look what he did to this person. Look at the hurt that he caused these people. You're going to call him part of your family? You're going to call her part of your family? No, they're mine. And the father... The Bible says, won't even remember our sins if we turn to him in repentance. He'll say, I really don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) He chooses not to remember them anymore. And some of us, we've been doing our part sinning and being a rebellious child. This is the beginning, by the way. I meant to mention this at the beginning. But this is the beginning of a, of a series of sermons on childlike faith. For Jesus, when the disciples says, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? I'm sure they were thinking scholars. I'm sure they were thinking philosophers in the faith, apologetics. They were thinking those guys that write books that make millions of dollars and tour around speaking. And No. Jesus says, well, we're, go get one of the kids out of the back room. Bring him up here. A child. A child. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. Well, if we're children, that means we got to have a father. And we do have a father, a good, heavenly father. And we can be in his family. And some of you are. And some of you need to let go of things in your life. And some of you need to call out to God for the first time. Today, just as we don't have to worry about 
with a good father something to eat, he has prepared for us a meal. And we're going to partake of that meal. We're also going to sing a, a hymn that I've asked Rachel to, uh, to do with us. Uh, what, what's the name of it again? Yes, This Is My Father's World. You remember that song? Does anybody know this song? It's a beautiful song. And, and, I, and, I, and, and so during the response, yes, come and pray. But let's worship this good father. This is not unusual. This, this is very unusual, by the way, in our world to think of God as a good father. But he is. He will always be. He is for you. Ask what you need to ask. He already knows. Don't be ashamed. Come forward. Do what needs to be done. Show that you are serious about being open to him. Let's all stand in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.